Hi, welcome to Whatcha Reading, Dude. It's Lisa, Jamie, Lauren. This is our time to catch up and share what we've been reading and inspired by, hoping to stir some deeper conversations. No one person has time to read every book or listen to everything, but we figured this is a good time to trade ideas, expand our horizons, and maybe inspire you as well. Just a reminder, this is for us, this is for fun, and we are not experts. Let's get into it. Hello, hello. So, it is now November when you're listening to this. It's winter time. What do you need in the winter time? You need a good TV show. You need to curl up with a book. But when you're not in the mood to curl up with a book, you got to curl up with that couch, with that blanket, with a nice marg or Moscow mule or even better, mulled wine. Hotty toddy. Tis the season. It's time for some good TV recommendations. And this is where I come in, an avid TV watcher for relaxation purposes. Here's the thing. The show I'm about to recommend to you guys, I'm prepared to take a lot of shit for recommending. It is what would be distinguished as trash TV. I didn't used to consider myself a trash TV watcher. I don't know if it's my age, life experience, general need to unwind at the end of the day, but I have turned into a trash TV fiend. Don't worry, still love my my critically acclaimed shows. And I, in fact, would argue that the show should be critically acclaimed. Based on the name alone, I'm going to get a lot of judgment. But when I say to you that my absolute favorite TV show of the last two years is The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Man, this is, let me start off by saying, yes, I watched The Bachelor. It's true. I love nothing more than getting together with a group of friends and a bottle of wine or two to three bottles of wine, depending on how many people you're watching with. You gotta be prepared. And watching grown men fight like little fucking children over the love of a woman who doesn't like any of them. Great TV. But The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I have never watched a Real Housewives franchise before. I vaguely remember as a child, low or high school, maybe freshman year, maybe eighth grade. My mother got headaches and would watch TV when she was feeling sick, as one does, and would watch Real Housewives of... Beverly Hills, maybe, or it might be the OC. I think it was the OC, not the OC, because the OC is a fantastic show. I'm talking about Real Housewives of Orange County, whatever one Yolanda Hadid was on, because I remember as a child, like, watching Gigi Hadid, who was around my same age, like, on TV, and be like, oh, that's weird, but I saw, like, two episodes of that, and I think I saw, when I lived in college, one of my roommates was a big Real Housewives fan, saw a couple episodes of Potomac, a couple episodes of Dallas. You know, Bravo was just kind of on in the background sometimes when E didn't have anything good on. But couldn't tell you any Real Housewives name other than NeNe Leakes. And um, some of those New Yorkers, uh, Bethany Frankel. Is there an Ainsley? See, I don't know. 
I'm not a big Real Housewives person. That's that's just what I'm trying to get at. This show, Salt Lake City in particular, is fascinating to me. And I have watched it from the beginning. And I have tried and tried to get people to watch it with me. But people don't want to give Real Housewives a chance because of the name. Which is fine. I was the same way. But I watched it from the beginning. And I absolutely love it. Salt Lake City is a fascinating place to me strictly because of the Mormon church and the very fascinating laws in Utah revolving around the Mormon church. There's a lot of questions that I have. So when gifted the opportunity to watch a TV show that's quote unquote unscripted, I believe it's partly unscripted at the very least, that deals heavily with Mormon theme in a very realistic way, it is absolutely fascinating. Now, again, I reiterate, I have not seen other franchises of Real Housewives. So the claim I'm about to make might not be true, but I'm going to make it anyway. I strongly believe that what makes Salt Lake City so fascinating to watch is the diversity of the cast. What makes this cast diverse, you say? There are four white women and a group of seven. That doesn't sound diverse to me. You know what? You're right. That's not as diverse as you would want it to be. However, a huge theme, as any show taking place in Salt Lake City would be, revolves around the Mormon church. There are, like I said, seven women that are main cast members. And of those seven women, there is Mary, Mary is an African-American Pentecostal preacher. She runs her own Pentecostal Christian church. Then there is Meredith. Meredith is a Jewish woman who grew up in New York and eventually moved to Salt Lake City. There's Jen Shaw, who is originally, I want to say, Pacific Islander. I know she grew up on Hawaii and then moved to Utah when she was young and was part of the Mormon church for a brief time before she met her husband, Coach Shaw, and married him and converted to Islamic faith. Then there's a Heather. Heather is a white woman who was born and raised in Salt Lake City, heavily Mormon background. Her great great-grandfather or something is someone that did something and I don't know but she was married to a Mormon man for a very long time raised three daughters in the Mormon faith and then her and her husband got a divorce that's a big no-no of course her husband was immediately accepted back into the church with open arms but Heather has not and I want to say she's been banished from Mormonism. Mormonism? Is that a thing to be banished? I don't know. But she's no longer a part of the part of the Mormon faith. Alongside Miss Heather is her cousin, Whitney Rose. Whitney is a ball of fire. Like I said, Heather's cousin also grew up Mormon. Also great-great-grandfather was someone important. Well, she and her husband met. When they were working together and had a scandalous affair, both of them were Mormon, got caught, ended up divorcing their people and then marrying each other and also got kicked out of the church. So that's our second ex-Mormon. And then season two introduced our new friend, Miss Jenny, 
Jenny is a Vietnamese immigrant and she has the most insane and fascinating background and I'm not going to go into it really I just again you guys have to watch the show but Jenny lived and grew up in Vietnam and then was a refugee and had to escape and literally like hid in boats to come into America oh man she's got a crazy backstory and now she is a Vietnamese immigrant and a Catholic then there is the one devout Mormon on the cast Miss Lisa Barlow Lisa Barlow owns a tequila company with her husband. That's right, a Mormon who owns a tequila company. Man, when I'm telling you if this show isn't the most crazy thing that you've ever seen in your whole life. Guys, obviously there's drama. I don't know how much any of you know. There's currently, um, as of the time of this recording, about one and a half seasons out uh, you might have seen in the news, Jen Shaw. Jen is the one that married Coach Shaw, is a Muslim, and she is, the only word I can use to describe her is literally insane. Insane. And actually, this past year, she was arrested for fraud, and that's going to be a huge storyline at the end of this season. We have not quite gotten to that point yet, but I'm very excited to get there. I think what I love so much about this show, other than, you know, the silly petty drama and, and all the fancy clothes and outfits that these beautiful women wear, and I'm a huge fan of <laughs> winter. Winter is my season. I thrive in winter. Give me two feet of snow on the ground and I will be the happiest camper you've ever seen in your whole life. I know that's rare, but it's true. They film Real Housewives of Salt Lake City in the f winter and spring in Salt Lake City. So there's a lot of snow on the ground, beautiful winter scenes, gorgeous shots of these gorgeous mansions with these gorgeous views that these women have. Apart from all that, if that didn't draw you in enough, the, I mean, the insane diversity of this cast with these seven women who have such different backgrounds different religious views who are consistently reminded about their religion talking about their religion I mean it I don't know I just love it I love getting to learn about you know Salt Lake City is not a diverse city it's not like let's be honest with ourselves it's not at all so the fact that they found these seven women half of whom I would say are of a diverse you know, type in Salt Lake City is, it just adds a different level to this show where you can really respect almost <laughs> all of these women. And there's always something going on. I don't even know what I'm trying to say at this point. I just love this show so much. And I have to have someone watch it because I have to have someone to talk about it with. Like, I know no one cares. I'm going to talk about it anyway. Right now, Meredith Marks is just the most perfect human being in the whole world. And she is who I want to be when I grow up. And if I cannot be Meredith Marks, God, please let me be Heather Gray. Like these two women on a show like Salt Lake City Real Housewives are just such beautiful role models for what I want to be. And they're so in this show... It's a lot of fights and it's a lot of forgiving fights and then a lot of bringing old fights back up. And it reminds me a lot 
of the Swahili word and ideal of samehe. And what samehe is, is true forgiveness. It's not, you know, if your friend does something that makes you upset, they say, I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you. That's one thing. That's just plain forgiveness. But do you actually forgive that person? Or does something happen three months from now? Maybe they make a similar error. Maybe they don't. And you're just in a bad mood. And you bring up that fight you had three months ago. You didn't actually forgive that person. Samehe, that's true forgiveness. When you say samehe to someone, you can never take that back. That means I forgive you. I am truly over it. I can't bring it up again. It is true, deep forgiveness. I am not going to hold that thing against you. These women do not know what Samehe means. That's fair. Who would? But they, I mean, (laughs) wow. It's a lot of these petty fights back and forth, yada, yada. Meredith and Heather are so, you know, we're a season and a half in. So they kind of saw what happened season one and everyone did. But these two women, I feel like are willing and able to admit when they've done wrong they're willing and able to forgive people when people have wronged them but not only that they're learning from their mistakes the other five women on this show I guess okay the other four women on this show Jenny excluded because she is a new cast member are not learning from their mistakes and if anything are just bringing it up later on it's ridiculous and totally what you expect from a group of rich beautiful 40 something year old women fighting I don't know I just think there's something we can all there's a part as a woman I cannot I'm not a man so I can't speak to that but as a woman watching this show there are parts of these women that I see in every single one of my friends or every single one of my enemies and I think we can all relate to these women we've all met one of these women they're all very unique humans it's almost like I would say almost like they're a different Enneagram type, right? So they're all very different women. Some of them may seem the same, but underneath it all, their motivations are different, whatever it is. And it's just really fun. It's really, really fun to watch. I enjoy watching this show much more than I do any of the Bachelor shows these days. Uh, I don't think anyone can blame me for that because those shows have really gone downhill, but... I don't know. There's something I am I going to give a different Real Housewives a try? Probably not. I would say highly unlikely, but I just find a lot of enjoyment out of this one. And it's a nice show with winter themes. And there's a lot of skiing and sledding and snowboarding that you can watch and get your winter fix while you're curled up or on your couch underneath your blanket with your beautiful cat. So I think I've rambled on for long enough. Hopefully if I've convinced one of our listeners to watch this so I can just have someone to talk about this with because I love the show so much and with that I hope you have a lovely winter season ahead I hope those of you who like snow are getting all the snow in the world and those of you who don't like snow should all move to Florida and stop complaining about snow when you live in I don't know the Midwest or Colorado And that's all I have to say about that. Au revoir. Hey everyone, Lisa here, leaving another voicemail. 
This week, I want to talk about the morning show. I just finished season two, and I just keep thinking about this show, so I might as well talk about it in a voicemail, and yeah, <laughs> I would like to chat about this. Before I dive into it, I do want to give a spoiler alert. I will be talking about season two some. I'm going to do my best not to give away a bunch of plot points or any spoilers, but if you haven't watched it yet and you'd really like to just go along for the ride without any indication of what may happen beforehand, just skip this, come back to it later. But yeah, so The Morning Show is a fictional TV show. It's an Apple TV original, but it is loosely based off of real events in regards to some of the scandals that broke out with Good Morning America, particularly like sexual harassment scandals. And it, but it also touches on some of the issues within the industry as a whole and even some of the rivalries between different shows like Good Morning America and Today. Uh, so there, you can feel, it, it's fictional, but it really feels like you're watching a memoir unfold. I constantly find myself wanting to Google and fact check what was real and what was fictional because the, the show is really captivating and it feels like such a realistic depiction of what could happen whether or not it actually did so I constantly find myself wondering how much is true versus kind of embellished for the sake of the show and I found out recently that the show is also based off of a book by Brian Stetler called Top of the Morning Inside the Cutthroat World of Morning TV and so you know, honestly, in finding that out, that makes me want to read the book even more, you know. But anyway, super quick synopsis for anybody who doesn't know. Yeah, the, so the season one is largely about finding out about these sexual harassment allegations from one of the co-anchors of the morning show and seeing how that unfolds both for the anchors, but in, mainly internally, like the whole, the crew and, you know, how it affects like the different levels of leadership. And so there, I mean, there's a lot that happens in season one beyond that, but you see the fallout of that and you kind of see the, the man who's being called out for these actions. I would say season one and two is really interesting just to watch his character arc in general and the character's name is Mitch Kessler but it's played by Steve Carell you know a titan and so you I don't know I think you get a really human perspective of his experience and you as a viewer I have definitely oscillated back and forth between feeling like this is a powerful man who used you know his power inappropriately to feeling empathy for him for and then to all sorts of other feelings, which has been an enlightening journey. Uh, but you also see, you know, how employees of color and different levels within the crew, the production crew, how they're treated, what their opportunities are, um, and a lot of the nuances of the industry in that regard, which are really interesting. Uh, so season two, you continue to watch the fallout of what happens, but I feel like you really start to see the progression in Mitch Kessler, like him kind of 
understanding and getting these waves of enlightenment and understanding his past actions and, you know, starting to understand the difference too between intent versus what actually happened. So anyway, I'll I'll let that be where it is. So you see all like the continuation of the storyline from season one, and you also see, you know, UBA, which is the corporation that hosts the morning show. You see them trying to recover from these scandals and trying to rebuild themselves, but still being held back by like tradition and what works. And, you know, they bring on some new leadership, but then she struggles to be taken seriously. And I I think it really speaks to where corporations are, like that tension of wanting to make change, but also knowing what works. And, you know, then you have shareholders that are weighing in as well. Yeah, so it's another level, (laughs) you know, but within all of the stories within the industry and the different storylines unraveling, you also get this like quiet crescendo of the pandemic beginning. And so this is this fictional world that then has this incredibly (laughs) real life phenomenon happen. So like you go from kind of parallel universe, the morning show is like Good Morning America to this is based in 2020 and you start off the season two in New Year's Eve and the season builds to like March. I I think the finale is around like mid-March where things just shut down. And I have to say, I have immense admiration for the writers on this because they really captured the beginning so accurately to at least what I remember feeling where you know the first episode is like a single cough and then you start to hear little new snippets but it's it doesn't even make the air you know the kind of it falls on the cutting room floor whatever the phrase is you know and and then you have people who go to China and start to experience it and it's still not taken seriously in the states you know and so you're just feeling this build and it it just felt so emotionally accurate and I Lauren and I have talked about this outside of the show about the the topic of shows bringing up the pandemic and having episodes in the pandemic and it's kind of it's it's not a clear black or white yes or no do it or don't do it decision in my eyes I think it's both important to document it but also really hard to watch back at this point. I remember when Blackish had some of their episodes that were the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, it was really hard to watch those because it brought me right back to early, mid-March, early April of 2020. But at the same time, it's a really good reminder. And I, I don't know if I've said this before, but I do think it's kind of similar to with 9-11, where some of the documentaries and other news reports and everything that it and I guess depictions in media and other ways and tv shows and movies it can feel too close to home at first but you know 20 years later it's like thank goodness we had this because we have basically a time capsule of what it really felt like in that moment but like even beyond the news reports that we can come back to as people 
live and grow up who haven't experienced that, you know? And, and so I think on the one hand, it's great to document it. But on the other hand, the pandemic has been such an earth-shattering, global impacting event and series of events that it almost feels impossible to have a fictional world without it because in my eyes like we're we're no longer like like I couldn't watch a show that just doesn't live in that reality anymore because it it would be completely unrelatable like when you look at like fictional worlds, like a beyond sci-fi, like something that's kind of loosely based in reality, and to try to think of creating a world where the pandemic didn't happen, like it's it's almost it's a future like we don't know of, you know, because we're we're so in this, and this will be impacting us for years. And so, I I think it was a good choice for them to include it beyond the obvious <laughs> reasoning of they are a media show and so of course like you know there are a couple industries especially in the beginning where i think the pandemic like like it's really important to show that or just really pivotal to the industry in itself you know so anyway <laughs> little tangent aside from there but i do really give the writing team kudos to how they worked it into the storyline and worked it into the progression of the season as a whole. So I, <laughs> I will say, I just highly recommend this show. I think it is not at all what I thought it would be like. And I think season two has really built on itself in a way that keeps me coming back. And so there, I guess there are a couple items I'll just highlight, but all of this to say, you should definitely go check it out you know, find someone who has Apple TV, go watch with them, <laughs> you know. But yeah, the, the couple highlights beyond what I've already stated here is what it's like, basically, the characters that just have interesting character arcs, but also just really complex emotions behind them. So Jennifer Aniston's character, Alex Levy, she is the co-host of the kind of disgraced anchor co-anchor of the show and in season two you really kind of see her being confronted with the truth in a bit and and I like I don't think the story for her is fully told yet in season two but I'm constantly wondering like is she has she just had her blinders up did she like was there some disassociation that she worked in her 15 years of working with Mitch where she just kind of forgot some of the things she said that contribute to the unhealthy environment at the show, you know? Or was she just really used to the environment and it just it felt normalized because that was just the culture of the show? Like, I don't know, but I feel like you start to see her grapple with this and start to see people kind of recalling things she said and her not remembering them and it happening repeatedly and kind of conveniently when it's 
things that, you know, would just kind of contribute to some of the actions of Mitch. And I don't know, like, it's not like, it's not to throw blame or anything, but I just think her role and her understanding of her part in the environment of the show and how maybe she thought she was independent of it and she continually tries to separate herself from those items but then slowly realizes like I don't know maybe I wasn't maybe I was a part of it maybe I'm not I'm not sure you know and then seeing the different levels of struggles that people of color are having within UBA and within the show I think has been really interesting because the the president of UBA that comes in new into season two, um, she's an Asian American woman and two of the, one of the anchors for the show and then the executive producer for the show are both people of color. And then there's like a weatherman too that he is kind of getting the brunt of cancel culture and like he's like I don't understand this like in some ways like I feel discriminated like I understand like I am like Latino so I understand what people are going through and it like in a way is like dismissing some people's feelings I don't know I'm kind of stumbling over my words right now but there's a lot of interesting nuance to the different levels of hierarchy and how people of color are still experiencing difficulty at different levels and even like trying to work within this system and help support each other like it it's difficult just like having representation in parts of leadership like isn't everything you know it like it doesn't it there's still inequity occurring but anyway I think the last kind of plot point I wanted to highlight is Reese Witherspoon's character Bradley Jackson in season two she's really kind of opening up her identity particularly when it comes to like sexual orientation and I think it's not so much her learning things about herself but her like maybe starting to own it more I think she's been able to live in a world where people can just like assume that she's hetero and she's been able to navigate that world just fine but a, a love interest enters her life which I think really offers her a lot of fresh perspective and kind of becomes like a reason for her really taking a step into owning who she is fully rather than just what works for her profession and personal life you know her love interest Laura Peterson played by Juliana Margulis she is just killing it with the fresh perspective (laughs) like there's some line when the two of them are talking at one point that she says and it's basically like Reese's character Bradley is like really kind of downing herself for being so messed up you know and uh, Laura Peterson is like you're not messed up like you were a kid you know you're just you learn certain behaviors to survive but you know you're an adult now and like fucked up adults get therapy you take care like you you work out your shit you know things like that and I know that comes from a point of privilege where not everybody can afford therapy but I think you really get the message of no matter what happened in your childhood or what happens to you like it's still your life and kind of your responsibility to heal from that or to to reconcile with it you know if that would bring you happiness and an easier 
life. And so I just really appreciated Juliana's character. I don't know. I think she's just that level head that Reese's character that's like kind of emotional and tends to greet things with anger. Like she kind of balances her out. um, And I think she's bringing a lot of sage wisdom into the show. So anyway, love the morning show. (laughs) And I hope you all check it out. It's really wonderful. Uh, it's really captivating. And I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with season three. I'm curious to see where they pick it up. And yeah, on that note, I will talk to you all later. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Lauren. I wanted to share a little bit about a trip that I just took in a book that I read um, in conjunction. I... Recently got back from a trip where I visited Arizona and went to Grand Canyon National Park for the first time. I met up with my family who lives in Indiana and we traveled out to the Grand Canyon and I had never been there before as I said and also we went to Zion and Bryce and that whole landscape is just so different than anything else in America and it was really cool to see just anytime I go to a place I haven't been to, and I've seen a lot of states in America. It's not like I, you know, have only seen the Midwest or something. But anytime I go to a new corner of the country, I am just like in awe of how diverse this country is. It's crazy. But I picked up a book before I left called The Grand Canyon, A History of Natural Wonder in National Park because I don't know a lot about the Southwest area and I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of read about the history of that National Park of like the landscape like geology wise of the Native Americans who lived there before it became a national park and then the kind of history of it becoming a national park and so on and so forth and it was cool it was really cool kind of driving around Arizona and southern Utah while reading about the landscape that was surrounding me. If you haven't done something like that, I really, I really, really enjoyed it. And I'll have to do that on upcoming trips as well. It was really cool. But I guess what I wanted to talk about, a couple things I found really interesting in the book, specifically kind of around when the park started to become more visited by um, Americans. We stayed, when we were in Arizona, we stayed in Williams, Arizona, which I don't, if you haven't been there, there's the North Rim and the South Rim of the Grand Canyon, and the South Rim is by far the more popular destination to go to, and I think it's just because it's easier to get to, but, so we stayed in Williams, Arizona, which is about, like, maybe 45 minutes south of like the Grand Canyon Visitor Center and my dad booked a railroad trip to take from where we were staying in Williams to the rim of the Grand Canyon and you know I didn't I didn't plan this trip I didn't really know what I was in for and kind of at first I was like you know why would we take like a two-hour train ride when we can drive an hour and see it quicker and like you know whatever. But as I was reading in this book and kind of being on the train, it was kind of cool to take the train to the rim because that was historically the way like the very first visitors 
aside from, of course, the Native Americans who had lived there. That was that was the way so many people visited the Grand Canyon for the first time. And of course, many of them had never seen anything like it before. They had not seen photographs. They had not seen paintings. They couldn't really even fathom how large and wide it was to be able to like take this train across nearly flat terrain and then get off and where it stops there's just this massive massive hole in the ground it was really quite incredible to see and and to experience and to feel like I'm kind of being a part of history in a way and I can understand why like in this book, the author writes about how many of the first visitors were almost horrified by what they saw, um, which I found really interesting because, I mean, I kind of knew what to expect. I've seen countless upon countless of photos and videos and paintings of the Grand Canyon. You know, I kind of understood what I was in for. I guess I can kind of imagine just not even understanding <laughs> how deep or wide this thing was to be to just come upon it and be like oh my gosh like we're living upon an earth that can look like this like it almost just feels like it could swallow you whole which I can imagine is <laughs> could be terrifying for people like I get that I also just find it really interesting like I feel like the way that we marvel at mountains above us is different than the way that we feel about kind of holes in the ground. <laughs> There's just something really scary about them. Kind of like, I mean, not really knowing the depths of the ocean is kind of terrifying to me. Or once I was visiting, I think I was at Carlsbad Caverns with Jamie, actually, and another friend of ours, and there was a hole in the cavern I think that was called the bottomless pit and that like that really cracked us up but I remember looking in there and now obviously we have the technology to kind of know how far that pit goes but it it is kind of scary to like look in a hole and not know how far it goes for whatever reason that's just really really terrifying <laughs> anyway that is a side note I was reading in this book, which is what I found really interesting. It's kind of around the time Teddy Roosevelt was either not quite president or he had just become president. And it was around the time that they were creating some of the first national parks. And the Grand Canyon wasn't yet a national park, but it was protected land. And it was kind of talking about how President Roosevelt visited the Grand Canyon. And he obviously he thought it was remarkable and he really wanted it to be preserved, as you'd think most people would, but it actually was quite a controversial thing at the time. Anyway, he said this quote. So basically, he, he took the, the railroad to, you know, the rim, and he sees it for the first time. And he, he says, I was delighted to learn of the wisdom of the Santa Fe Railroad in deciding not to build their hotel on the brink of the canyon. So kind of at this time, it, there was all this controversy about building buildings on the rim and, like, how many people should it accommodate and all this stuff. So he says, I hope you will not have a building of any kind, not a summer cottage or a hotel or anything else, to mar the wonderful grandeur, sublimity, and great loneliness and beauty of the canyon. Leave it as it is. You cannot improve on it, not a bit. The ages have been a work on it, and man can only mar it. 
What you do is to keep for your children and your children's children and for all who come after you, as one of the great sights in which every American, if he can travel at all, should see. Keep the Grand Canyon as it is. And so that quote is actually used quite a bit by park rangers in the national parks all over the country. It's, I mean, it's wonderful words. It's, it's so important, and I'm so glad that the people of the past have decided to preserve certain pieces of land in America. I think that's why, you know, so many, there's so many amazing places that we can visit now. But the author also points out that it's, it's not fully possible to keep it unmarked. You know, it, it brings up this kind of contradictory leave no trace idea where it's not fully possible to leave no trace in order to have people visit these sites. And so it, the author and, and I as well find it really interesting that Teddy Roosevelt wanted to keep this site untouched and at the same time he wanted every American in the country to visit it. You know, it's just, it's interesting. And I think that's a question that national parks and national forests grapple with still today. And it's an interesting idea with the internet and Instagram and stuff like that now where, you know, we want people to know about these beautiful places in our country and in the world. But at the same time, we don't want them to become overrun with people to the point where they're almost destroyed. So it's it's a really interesting balance. You know, when I was there at the Grand Canyon, I was kind of admiring some of the architecture that they had there. And they had one specific female architect who designed a lot of the buildings there. Her name was Mary Coulter, which being a female architect at the time, she was born in 1869, was practicing at the end of the 1800s. That was pretty rare for a female to be an architect. And she wasn't considered an architect at the time. I think they called her an interior decorator or something, but she was an architect. Anyway, she designed some really beautiful buildings on the South Rim, at least, that really blend into the surroundings in a beautiful way. You know, I think it's important to be able to build with the landscape in order for humans to enjoy, you know, don't know how to really best articulate this but we can't fully leave no trace every place we go you know our footprints alone (laughs) are leaving a trace but I do think we need to be really mindful and careful about what we're doing on the land anyway I found that really interesting in this book there was a lot of controversy on becoming this park becoming a national park because of the people that owned the land in that area, didn't want it to become a national park. And actually, the railroad at the time was a really big proponent of it because they, you know, they wanted people to visit different areas of America. And they, what better way to do it than the railroad system, which I found really interesting. But all that to say, there are some really amazing things in America. And... I hope that as you, as I, as all of us, like kind of discover more of these amazing places that we're just mindful of the places that we're at. We take the time to kind of learn about the people who have lived there. Anyway, (laughs) I'm not sure how to close this. 
but let me know if you have any thoughts or if you've ever like read something read a book or whatever while you were in a place i really really enjoyed it like i said and encourage anyone to do that well have a nice week everyone bye thanks for listening links from today's episode can be found in the show notes on our website whatyourreadingdude.com we'd love to hear from you if you have anything that piqued your interest or you want to share email us at wrdpod at gmail.com maybe we'll feature you on the pod you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and also on instagram at wrdpod follow us and stay up to date on future episodes like leave a review tell a friend you get the idea Music for this podcast was created by Kalindo. Find him on Instagram at The Real Kalindo. Stay inspired and we'll see you next week.